0: Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more. The moments are for all of us. Glad to have you subscribing. Subscribe if you haven't on YouTube, leave a review, Spotify, wherever it might be, Apple. The show continues forward. On this episode here, we have joining us the author of this fine book, A Molecule Away from Madness. The author is Sarah Manning Peskin. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Glad to have you on here. Dr. Sarah Manning-Peskin, by the way, tales of the hijacked brain. To me, the the brain is the most important part of us. And to me, it's actually the most interesting part probably of the whole planet because what can do more uh, manipulation or movement or activity than the brain on the planet? Not so many things. Water doesn't really think its way through life. Now before we get into the book, I would like to do a quick bio here. You're an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania and your writing has appeared in the New York Times, Boston Globe magazine and the Philadelphia Inquirer. You are coming from Pennsylvania. What has taken you to Pennsylvania? Why are you in the field that you are in?
1: Um, I grew up in Boston and then I came to to Philly for medical school. And then I've been here ever since. Yeah, but I, That's pretty cool. I, uh, I suppose I ended up in neurology mostly for the same reason. I ended up in cognitive neurology, which is my subspecialty. And it's basically because I'm most interested in how people think and sort of the, the way that people's identities can change.
0: Actually, on that one, how much can this is before the book content? How much can people's identities change is it at a certain age at which we are no longer really malleable plasticity wise, where are we at there?
1: Yeah. So cognition changes even in normal people. And we talk about this often with our patients that, you know, we have this idea that um, we're supposed to be as good as we've always been for the rest of our lives, or maybe we have some senior moments. Um, But in reality, if you think about cognition in sort of two categories, you think about it as crystallized intelligence and fluid intelligence both of them get worse eventually. Crystallized intelligence is things like, um, why do we have a parole system? Uh, it's facts. And that tends to get better and better and better till about your 60s and 70s. And then for the most part, that all gets worse after your 60s and 70s, even in normal people. The only exception is actually vocabulary. Vocabulary seems to be sort of resistant to aging, or resistant to normal aging, I guess I should say. Um, but then there's fluid intelligence, and that's things like reacting to the environment around you, finding a word that you need in the middle of a sentence, Uh, you get to a detour, and you have to navigate around it without a GPS, all of that starts getting worse in your 20s, and then just gets worse the rest of your life. Uh, And so uh, we really our normal cognition evolves over time.
0: Mm. That's interesting about the vocabulary. It's not really (laughs) Yeah, that that
1: it's, it's sort of the the exception not, you know, it becomes more difficult for us to pull up the words in conversation. But when you point blank, ask someone, you know, what does X mean? That actually, at least in normal people, stays relatively stable.
0: That's good to know. I like vocabulary words like facetious and grandiloquent and erudite. Things like this, these are great. (laughs) long live vocabulary. Now, you're a neurologist. What is the big differentiator from that versus neuroscientist? The separate fields that are related, what's the biggest distinguisher that you identify with?
1: So, there are certainly people who are neurologists and and neuroscientists. I think a lot of people identify neuroscience more as a sort of basic science field. Uh, It's someone who's more in this sort of uh, PhD research type track, Uh, whereas I'm more of a, a clinical person. So, most of what I do is seeing patients. I do some clinical research visits. So for people who enroll in research studies, I may do some of their evaluations as part of those research studies. Uh, But I'm not, you know, I don't have my own laboratory. I'm not using a pipette and petri dishes all day and things like that
0: darn, I was about to ask about pipettes and Petri dishes and graduated. cylinders. No, I actually,
1: I started a PhD, I started off in a a combined MD, PhD program. Normally, you start medical school, and then you do your PhD, and then you finish medical school. And I got about a year into my PhD and decided I I didn't want to finish it. Um, So, uh, so no, I I very much uh, don't have um, a stronger research background as, as a lot of people.
0: Yeah, that is cool. Graduated cylinders have a lot of milliliters on them for people that are wondering. They sometimes go up to 100, and it's really exciting out there. Now, I throw a little bits in. It's always good. (laughs) Uh, In your book, which we are going to cover, you have a variety of patients. You look at each one in detail in relation to uh, a circumstance of theirs and what it tells us about how the brain can be hijacked in a form. What caused you to choose this set of patients? Were they representative of some of the most common or most noticeable features? What was the defining trait there?
1: So a lot of the things that I wrote about are not particularly common syndromes. I wanted to cover diseases that bring up different issues in neurology. So I divided the book into four different sections based on different kinds of molecules. And I wanted to make sure to cover diseases that are caused by those different kinds of molecules. And uh, and then I looked for what patients that I have access to or did colleagues have access to who had interesting stories, who were interested in talking about them. And that's sort of how I filled it out. I started off really with a, a larger list of syndromes that I was interested in that would sort of fit the pattern. And then it got narrowed down based on, you know what I had access to.
0: That's cool. The expansion consolidation uh, framework of putting together something is a wonderful item. You have to have the most at the beginning. And then what are the main ones I'm putting in there? One of the main ones that has made it in this case is the story of Lauren. Lauren uh, knows about something that's in sci-fi movies a lot, the zombie uh, apocalypse. How is Lauren's story connected with zombies and their potential showing in her existence?
1: Yeah, so this is a story about, uh, and I use pseudonyms in the book, um, but I tried to keep most of the other parts accurate. Um, So Lauren was a a young woman who grew up in somewhat adverse circumstances and uh, really excelled academically. She did extremely well. Her mom was very supportive, and she ended up going to an elite university, and then she came back the summer after graduation, and uh, she started watching The Walking Dead. And this was back in, it was 2016 or so, and The Walking Dead was a huge, a huge hit. And she was watching them uh, over and over and over again, sort of binge watching. And she uh, woke up one morning and asked her mom, you know, what they're, what do they want to have for breakfast and they eat breakfast together. She goes back to sleep and then she wakes up again and asks her mom what's for breakfast, which is a little weird because she she just eaten, eaten breakfast. Her mom sort of thought twice about it. Yeah. And as the day goes on, Lauren's memory seems to get worse and worse. She can't really seem to uh, encode anything. She can't keep any new information and then she starts getting a fever and she gets really unsteady on her feet. And so her mom says, you know, I think we should go to the hospital and I'm worried about you. And so her mom takes her to the car, they go to the hospital, they end up in a, you know, in a hospital bay. And, um, A a doctor comes into the room and starts asking her questions. And in the middle of the questioning, Lauren starts essentially having a, a psychotic attack. Uh, or a psychotic episode and she throws her mom to the ground and they call for security there's like nine security guards that come and have to drape themselves on her to try to hold her down and uh, she starts calling people by names of characters in the walking dead and one of the security guards actually is the one who picks up that that's what's going on it's a security guard who must have Watched the show and recognized the names and recognized what was going on because her mom had no idea of the connection. Her mom had never seen the show, and uh, but so yeah. But Lauren gets admitted to the hospital, and nobody can really figure out what's going on. They do all these tests, and all the tests seem to look normal, but she obviously is not acting normal. And uh, her mom actually comes across an article about young women who have acute psychotic episodes. And she brings it up to the doctors and says, "You know, do you think this could be what's going on? It was an article about an autoimmune disease that causes that. And uh, the doctors say, you know, I, I don't think that's what it is. And they do more tests and lo and behold, they can't find anything. And eventually they agree to send her to a bigger hospital where they actually diagnosed this disease that her mom had identified in an article and she gets treated for the disease. And the way the disease works is actually she, Lauren actually had had a tumor on her ovary and nobody had known about the tumor. It wasn't big and it wasn't causing a problem in terms of the size of the tumor, but her body had tried to create antibodies that would attack the tumor. Um, But the tumor, looked, the cells in the tumor look a little bit like nerves um, and a little bit like brain cells. And so when her body went to attack the tumor, it actually created antibodies that also attacked things that were in the brain, and it caused her brain not to work correctly, and to actually essentially function as if she was on PCP. It's the same type of mechanism, and so uh, they, eventually she actually got treated. They took out the tumor. They treated her with medications to decrease antibodies, and then you know she was released to the hospital, and, and she's doing well. Yeah, I and mean, that's a case of something where you know. The disease itself was only really discovered about 20 years ago or less than 20 years ago. So 25 years ago, if she had showed up at the hospital, she would essentially have been sent to a inpatient psychiatric unit and she may have never gotten out.
0: So it's actually kind of like she would feel that she was on the drug PCP in that condition
1: yeah so at a molecular level they work the same way so um there's a a molecule called the nmda receptor and the the way that lauren's disease worked was that her body made an antibody that sort of blocked the nmda receptor and pcp also works by inhibiting function of that same receptor and the difference obviously is if you use pcp it wears off eventually whereas when you have this disease process you're essentially chronically making these dangerous antibodies. So it's almost like you're kind of on a a drip of PCP. The effect never really goes away versus, uh, you know, if you use PCP once, you'll eventually be fine again. Uh, But but, uh, so it's sort of a a wild um, pathophysiology and the way that it works is at a cognitive perspective, it essentially sort of unhooks your perception of reality from inputs from uh, the external environment. So normally, what we do is we sort of modify our thoughts and our perceptions of reality using input from what's going on around us. And but these effect these sort of um, disease processes, and PCP as a drug sort of unhooks that. So you're sort of subject to the reality that you create in your mind. It's called dissociation.
0: I think about this sometimes. To uh, it's like deconstruction back to the exactly what is causing what, and then how the person is taking it in and after that. So then uh, do we ever think of some drugs are being used by some individuals to uh, counter something that is, let's say off, or there's a missing, uh, there's a piece that's uh, not functioning appropriately, but when they use it, it's like a temporary fix. And so they're kind of trapped in that scenario for many years because they're trying to like put a plug into a socket, but it just keeps coming out and they just, that's the drug?
1: Yeah, this is a drug sort of um, patching, a, patching a hole and not fixing the underlying problem. I think it's an interesting, It's an interesting question. I think we think of that often with um, you know using antidepressants versus doing talk therapy. And in some ways we think about, you know some people benefit from talk therapy and it allows them to develop skills to uh, cope with events that come up. And then when something else challenging comes up, they develop the skills to cope with it. Um, And some people that's not as effective and actually taking medications that alter the brain chemistry um, is more effective. But if they go off of the medications in the future, uh, they may be fine, but some of them have trouble.
0: Actually, on that one, a, a curiosity at the current moment versus, let's say, 10 years ago, is it is there a higher ratio of people in society that are using some sort of mind altering medication than 10 years ago or is it less or is it about the same, would you say?
1: I've never seen statistics about it, so I'm not sure. I have no idea. I think oh, okay. I would say you know my impression is that they're they're very common now, and that you know 20 years ago they weren't as common. Yeah, but I've never read a statistic about
0: it. Fair. My my guess or such would be along the same lines of what you were saying. It just seems like it's been more targeted, whereas before things that were more physical. Uh, like heart or skin or things that are more mechanical were targeted. And then in more recent times, as we got more advanced, we're getting more and more into our brain. Seems like fair. That's funny. I'm like describing it. And here do I have a neurologist, but I'm just my gut feeling. No, I think you're
1: right. (laughs) I think uh, Your gut feeling's good.
0: (laughs) That's good. Um, So that is Lauren and... Which is not her actual, that's like a pseudonym. Exactly. Name, by the way, Lauren. Yeah, cool. So, onward we go to another who may also have a pseudonym or not Danny Goodman. And Danny has a question of whether his father has been recently witnessed. Why would Danny ask such a question? And what molecule is being spoken about in that example.
1: Yeah, so um, this is a chapter I wrote about uh, a guy named Danny Goodman and his son, who I called Russell. Um, and these are, again, actually, it's all pseudonyms in the book. Yeah, But the other details are, are I tried to, to keep to the truth. Um, but uh, so Danny Goodman was this uh, incredibly successful entrepreneur. He had, you know, been in uh, fast food restaurants. He'd done arts and craft stores. And uh, eventually he settled on this business uh, where they sold wine and it became this extraordinarily successful business and he started it later in life he started in his 50s or 60s and he wasn't particularly tech savvy but it was an online business primarily and it just took off and he was doing extremely well and he needed someone to uh, to, to join the business at a high level and he actually invited his son russell who i call russell uh, to join the business and Russell at the time was a, he was a molecular biologist. He didn't have any training in selling wine, but he you know, liked the idea of working in the family business and it was doing well. So he decides to join his dad at work. And everything's going well until about six months later when Russell notices that his dad's less friendly than he used to be. They used to, his father used to give him a hug when they would get to work. And he just really stopped doing that. And 1st Russell thinks, also thinks, you know, maybe we're working together. Maybe he just feels like, you know, it should be a more uh, sort of business-like relationship when we're here. And, but then things get a little stranger and Danny starts uh, putting uh, lots of exclamation points in the ads online. Uh, and he starts asking strange questions. So they looked at a, a financial summary from February and he asked, you know, where's the 29th and 30th? So sort of unusual questions for someone who runs a, you know, a, a sort of um, mammoth business very successfully in the past. Yeah, he, he stopped answering his phone. So people would call and the, the phone would just ring and he would really feel no motivation to, to open it. Uh, and he started eating pizza to a point where he would you know, gain lots of weight, whereas before he was someone who had a relatively reasonable uh, diet. He really seemed to have no insight that uh, he should have a you know, more diverse diet. He would just eat pizza all the time. And uh, he would order DVDs online, and he would just order multiple copies of the same DVD. He would get you know, hundreds and hundreds of DVDs uh, delivered. So it's just these really strange behaviors. Um, and he starts looking at pornography uh, at work. And this is a computer that faces the door. Uh, So it really was just um, very, very out of character behavior. And he starts getting diagnoses. Some people think that he has ADD. Some people think it's related to back pain. But his son with his molecular biology background actually starts to wonder whether this is a problem related to their DNA. And he knows that he has this family history. There's been some some other relatives that have had unusual cognitive changes later in life. One of them had problems with speech, and some of them had problems with movements. And so his son, Russell, starts to wonder whether maybe actually there could be a problem with their DNA. And sure enough, they go to a a neurologist, and, and they're told that he has a condition called frontotemporal dementia, which is a condition that causes these classic classic symptoms of people who are disinhibited. They may go up to strangers, they can be hypersexual. um, They can say sort of um, inappropriate things that they wouldn't otherwise say. Um, They often become apathetic where they just have really, they're not depressed, but they have no motivation to do anything. They might be happy just sitting and staring at a wall all day. And um, they can be uh, what's called hyperoral, So they might have strange eating behavior. Sometimes they'll eat, you know, they'll only eat chips or they'll chew gum and they need to chew gum all the time. Uh, they can get sort of rituals like that um, and they can have some other symptoms. Um, and in about 20 percent of people and Danny Goodman was one of these people, um, the disease is caused by a genetic mutation. And so in the book, I write about Russell's experience deciding whether or not for, to get tested himself for the disease. He knew he had a better for the, the, uh, the mutation. He was totally normal. He is totally normal. And uh, he has a, a 50, 50% chance of getting that genetic mutation when he was conceived. And he went through genetic testing and found out that he actually carries that mutation. Even though he has no symptoms, he carries that mutation that puts him at high risk for developing symptoms in the future. Um, And so what I write about in the book is sort of their whole family story and and Russell's um, sort of techniques for coping and and how he thinks about all of it.
0: One thing, as you mentioned, that it made me think I have told people before that I I could stare at a wall and be fine, but I don't think I have the condition. It's just that I am content in existence. <laughs> to uh,
1: all of these. So we, and I think like, we get people all the time where they've been diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia and they have one or two symptoms, but uh, it really is a question of, as a whole story, are we getting this picture? So um, the, the diagnosis is made by having a constellation of symptoms, not a single thing.
0: <laughs> That's true. Should the average person be worried about how worried should they be about dementia at different ages? Uh, what's the likelihood of that occurring? And is it like dangerous or just that it's something that you sh- should deal with?
1: So if you take the average 65 year old who's cognitively normal, there's about give or take, Yeah, there's about a 25% chance that they'll develop dementia uh, before they die. So it's not it's not 100%. It's not 75%. But it's a re- it's not a small proportion. And uh, so that that's a sort of a good benchmark statistics. And um, that number is sort of um, tinkered with by different risk factors. So if you have relatives with dementia, that might change it a little bit. If you have certain genetic factors that can increase the risk, that can change things. Uh, Women have a higher risk. Um, People who are African-American have a higher risk. Uh, And in general, the risk goes up over time. So the older you are, the higher risk is going to get for for dementia. And uh, so that's sort of a, a way to think about it. And then in our clinic, we use other factors to try to better understand whether someone is, is developing dementia or will develop uh, dementia. And we also use things like uh, you know, cognitive testing to see if they're abnormal. Uh, we look at imaging. yeah. We may look at uh, other things that could contribute or cause their symptoms.
0: On that one, what are some of the most common issues that you deal with as a neurologist that people come to you for?
1: So I'm, I'm sort of in, in cognitive neurology. So I'm mostly a dementia doctor. That's what I see. So most of the people who come to see me are saying, is there something neurodegenerative going on or is this normal? Um, they're saying, you know, what's causing my symptoms? And there's a dementia itself is sort of a, a non-specific term. It basically, ta- it refers to how someone's functioning in the everyday world. So there's normal, there's something called mild cognitive impairment, and there's dementia. Normal is someone who has normal functioning and their cognitive testing is normal. Mild cognitive impairment is someone who notices things are a little more difficult in the everyday life, but they're doing everything they always used to do. When we do cognitive testing, we can pick up things that are abnormal, but the person is still completely functional in the outside world. What dementia means is the person's unable to do things that they used to be able to do because of memory and thinking like um, they can't manage the finances at all anymore. And they've had to ask someone else to take it over because they are making too many errors or um, they can't drive anymore because they got lost too many times. And that's what dementia is. But it turns out there's lots of causes of dementia. So dementia is just a description of what it looks like when someone moves about the everyday, you know, moves about the world. Yeah, uh, the causes of dementia actually are differentiated based on what they look like under a microscope. And so oftentimes this is after people pass away. If we, in research protocols, we look at a piece of the brain under a microscope and we look at what abnormal proteins we're seeing in the brain. and uh, And then that's often the cause of dementia. So when we say something like, someone has Alzheimer's disease, what we mean is that if I look at a piece of their brain, I would see two proteins, one is amyloid and one is called tau. That's what Alzheimer's disease means. It's that there's buildup of amyloid and tau proteins in the brain. So it's a description of what's going on under a microscope versus dementia is a description of what's going on in the real
0: world with someone. Can most issues that a person comes in with be identified using different indicators? Or are there some that are not easily identified thus far? How easy is it to once you examine something, say you're 32% at this level, you're at this level, is it that directly able to be seen?
1: So most people that we see, we come to some sort of idea of we think this is neurodegenerative and progressive, or we don't think it's neurodegenerative and progressive. Some of the people were able to say, look, we, we have almost proof that this abnormal protein is building up in your brain. But a lot of people, we, we aren't able to say that. And we're able to say, like, we think this is going to progress over time. Here are the symptoms that we think are going to arise in the future. But if I looked under a microscope, I can narrow it down to some proteins that I think I'd see, but I'm not positive which one.
0: Mm. That's cool. I like think we're getting a lot more insight through so many patients over time and combined research. It's like we get to figure out everything in a little bit. Now, uh, returning to patients of sorts, we have a bellows, bellows and related molecule. What is the scenario in this one?
1: I'm trying to remember the you know, that I have to go back and let uh, me just, let me have you, hold on one second, I have to go back and look up that chapter to be just a moment.
0: Mike bellows.
1: That Mike Bell. Sorry, I am trying the for the first name. That was what school. it was. I'm missing the first name. I forgot the first so, name too. I um, that. Right. That's on me. So, but uh, so Mike Bellows uh, was a uh, a guy who. Uh, met the love of his life in high school, um, but was a little bit too intimidated to ask her out, and they ended up going their separate ways. And uh, they each got married; they each had kids. Which happens, in and life. right, not actually an uncommon story. They, for uh, they each had kids. They, uh, and then they ended up separating from their their first partners. Uh, and then he meets this woman uh, again in the general store in their town uh, oh, some years later, and asks her out. And uh, they end up sort of becoming a couple. And they start dating, and he decides he wants to propose to her. And so he buys a ring, and the plan is to propose to her in Turks and Caicos, where they're going for her birthday. And so he gets everything uh, ready. But in the lead-up to the trip, um, he starts sort of changing. They go on this trip that he's been going on every year with friends to the beach. And normally, he's sort of a, he's a really sort of, outgoing, friendly, uh, sort of uh, extrovert type guy. And on this trip, he just seems to be a little bit introverted, a little bit angry. Uh, He sort of would put his chair on the other side of the beach. Whenever he talks to people, he kind of looks away. And his uh, girlfriend notices that things just look different. And um, he uh, starts getting into uh, drinking and and, um, and he starts smoking again. And he just seems to be sort of uh, becoming more agitated and more anxious than he was before. He didn't wasn't really an anxious guy by nature. And so, yeah, but in the midst of that, he's planning to propose and he buys a ring and they go to Turks and Caicos. And uh, they get to the hotel and he uh, gets extremely agitated and punches a hole in the wall. Ends up, the, the, uh, his girlfriend ends up having to call security. And uh, the, the weekend sort of or the week goes on like that with them essentially sort of not being able to uh, to get back to where they were, which had been a very successful, loving relationship. And so they fly back home and his girlfriend sort of doesn't know what to do. This seems totally out of character. And uh, she comes down one day and uh, comes downstairs one day and he's sitting in the kitchen and he says, um, essentially, uh, let's go fishing. And it sort of comes out of nowhere. And uh, he's sort of wearing a, um, a uh, wearing boots and holding a fishing rod. And it's like the middle of the night. Right. It's the middle of the night. Yeah, but he sends her text messages saying, um, you know, that must be so scary. And he seems to think that she's like a spider outside his car window. Um, at one point, he thinks he's the president. Um, he's you know, on his uh, motorcycle in the yard at one point, mimicking as if he's going through a toll booth. So he just gets more and more strange behavior. And eventually he ends up going to the hospital and he starts developing these uh, actually whole body contractions. And they're incredibly violent to the point where he almost bites off his own tongue. They're just very, very dramatic. And uh, he ends up getting bounced around from hospital to hospital to rehabs for months and no one can figure out what's going on. He's intubated. So he has a breathing tube, uh, but he has a feeding tube. It's just sort of, he's gone from being a normal person to being an extraordinarily sick person over a short period of time. And eventually he ends up at a hospital where someone actually recognizes his symptoms. And they recognize that the, the, the syndrome that he has is actually caused by an autoimmune process where his immune, his immune system is attacking uh, what's called the glycine receptor. So there's a, a neurotransmitter called glycine that's really important to help you relax. So when you want to relax down, uh, but when you want to sort of relax your arm to the, you know, to, the, uh, to the chair or something like that, glycine is really what helps you in the spine to relax, uh, relax your muscles. It, gives, it helps neurons send that signal to your muscles to sort of let go of tension. Uh, in his case, that receptor wasn't getting the right signals, and that's what was causing the, the symptoms. It's a little bit akin to tetanus. Um, and once this, uh, this doctor diagnosed him, he was treated um, and he actually eventually they took the breathing tube out, they took the feeding tube out and he uh, went home uh, eventually and proposed to the woman that he'd wanted to propose. He actually he bought a different ring because he decided that ring was sort of bad luck after all they'd been through. Um, but he eventually did propose to her.
0: One thing that comes to mind there, it's a fun story, by the way, that's an interesting story. Um, how often or how common is it that patients will go to one location and then nothing really comes to mind and they get sent somewhere else? Is that common or is it only in rare cases?
1: I think it's really common. I, the statistic that I've read is that mm-hmm. if you um, take all the complaints that go to a primary care doctor, about one in five are what's called medically unexplained, mm-hmm. where we don't find an answer. And a lot of those people will go looking for answers at another you know, their doctor's office and sometimes it's really great because you end up seeing someone who has the answer and that's fantastic and you say thank god i saw this person thank god i kept pursuing this Mm -hmm. and other times you know people go from doctor to doctor to doctor and their chart gets thicker and thicker and thicker so every time they go to a new doctor it becomes even more difficult to sift through what actually happened and uh, and they don't end up finding answers and it's really hard to know that balance as a patient how far should you push things Yeah, I always think I think it's really important to be with a doctor where you feel comfortable asking them questions and bringing up possible new diagnoses.
0: Is it more common that an unidentified issue is found like it has to be in person with a doctor or that it's found through researching online or some records or other cases
1: I have've no, never seen a, an actual study of that I have no idea I guess I'm biased and I like to think that we're better than Google <laughs> but uh, but right. I've never seen anyone I've never seen a, a statistic about that-hmm
0: yeah I like uh, yeah like Google or like, yeah like I guess that'd be kind of tough to put in like the what the elements are of that person. it pretty much has to be in person. Most things that are good in life, they're in person. It just, it's very difficult to do almost anything. I think of it as terms of like bandwidth, the highest bandwidth is in person all the way like down video, then audio, then text. Uh, The lower the bandwidth, the less you can discern all the key elements. And now you're working with, you've created a more difficult puzzle for yourself in a way.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think about that for people relating to, it's like, you you know, through texts, you can only a thousand texts might be worth one minute of video time or less than that, because there's so much you pick up versus that.
1: Yes. Yeah, I wonder whether that, that calculus changed with the pandemic wouldn't now we've become so much more used to sort of virtual meetings.
0: That's true. One thing I think is cool, though, is that the, that element is in full video. If this has happened 20 years ago, it might've been like just maybe audio or even text. Now that would have been kind of shaky material. A lot of classes I've throw this in, but a lot of classes have like a teacher and then like 20 students that are, their camera is not there. And then the teacher's like talking into an abyss. That is a funny element of the recent, uh, period. Yeah. Just had to throw that in there.
1: <laughs> I think right, that's <laughs> and, a common thing. And then I think some people have made rules that you have to have your, I know there's a class that I taught and there was a rule that you had to have your camera on.
0: That's cool. Actually, on that one, um, have you enjoyed teaching? And when you're teaching, do you think about is everybody on the same page here? Or as a teacher, do you think some people might not be so uh, fully invested in this and that's okay? I was, I was talking about this with somebody like a couple of days ago.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're never going to get every, I'm never, I don't know, maybe I'm not a good enough, good enough teacher, but I'm, I'm never going to get everyone to be 100% enthusiastic about everything. And and I think when I when I think of the classes that I've taken, some of them that I love, I know other people haven't liked. And so I think the main thing though, is that at least in the, the class that I taught was an undergrad class about sort of the history of neuroscience. And yeah, but I think there's always going to be people who are more interested than other people. But the main thing is that there has to be you know, some sort of participation from people in some sort of give and taking conversation. And the same way as, you know, we think of that as a life skill. Everyone you talk to isn't going to have the most interesting thing to say. But part of communicating with people in work and and personal setting is being able to talk to people who may be, you know, less interesting, but engaging with them and asking questions and uh, sort of um, pushing the conversation, even though it's not the best thing you've ever heard. I think the same way with classes, part of it is learning how to engage with new material, whether or not it's your favorite material or not.
0: I have to add in, this is a pointer in the moment. I have noticed that Sarah has a, I'll call it like a humbleness to your descriptions about how you're uh, teaching or may not be the best. The people who say that always, I found in my existence, and I've mentioned this before, are actually more uh, aware and understanding. And yet they're still kind of like pulling back versus the person who uh, maybe not doesn't have as much uh, depth or understanding, but they're not going to include that part just hoping that people are fully with them. So it's almost like um, communication is almost not always, but generally like an opposite of what's actually occurring. I have this theme of that, where it's always like the person who is uh, worried about being around people might present themselves as though they're no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And the person who's great with people will actually pull it back in a more humble way. But they are actually good with people. <laughs> Communication there. That's not now, on this point of uh, personality qualities, I always throw in, I'm very people oriented in personality qualities. What are three traits of your own that you identify with or that come to mind that you're like, this is me or these things relatively describe me in some way?
1: Yeah, that's Challenge a great question. Questions. I haven't thought about that in a really long time. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Yeah, um, I've always been a little bit spaced out my, uh, at, at my wedding, my parents made fun of this, that even as a kid, I was always sort of lost in thought. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's always been my, um, my sort of general feel in conversation that sometimes my thoughts will run away to, uh, to something else. Yeah, um, so I think I've always been a, a little bit spaced out.
0: You have like a networking mind. <laughs>
1: Maybe that's a, that's a nice, that's a complimentary way to put it. A nice euphemism. Um, and then, um, I'm just trying to think. I tend to be generally sort of um, even tempered, I guess. Yeah, um, I'm not the most sort of uh, outgoing person that you'll meet by any means. Uh, but and, um, I don't know. I don't I have to think about a third. I wish I had prepared for this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, that first one you mentioned, it jumped to my mind automatically. They might It might be described as spaced out, but what is that person doing? They're connecting this concept with that concept linking a variety, whereas some people are more like ABC and has been a direct linear path, which is more like uh, the basic framework that is easy to deal with. but all the cool things in life come from the linkage of various things like the Santa Fe Institute I always talk about. it's a multidisciplinary science place that can combine economics and physics and other. That's where the great uh, answers come from versus if only chemists stuck with chemists and followed the line of chemists, And never got, you know, spaced out or went to a different space in some way, then. so limited yeah and i think actually so one of the
1: chapters in the book is about the way the people who discovered the location of the gene that um causes huntington's disease and actually the way that that was discovered was a, a woman who she had herself was at risk for huntington's disease and now has actually developed the disease and she basically she and her father created these workshops where people from across different scientific disciplines would come together and talk about trying to find you know trying to sort of synthesize a a scientific approach for finding the gene. And it was very much that attitude of, we need to bring people out of their comfort zones, yeah, bring people who have different areas of expertise. They weren't allowed to bring any slide sets because the idea was you can't rely on your, you know, what you know, what's wrote, um, And they had relatively small groups. It was, I think something like, you know, 20 people or less. And the idea was exactly what you're saying. You have to collaborate across different disciplines. I have to say the book really comes from the same idea. I mean, I have no, I don't really have any training in, in writing. Uh, and so uh, my training is mostly in I have some basic science training and then um, and my training is in medicine and actually getting into the idea of um, narrative medicine and physician writing. Uh, it, it's a really neat sort of crossover uh, interface and um, it's a, a budding field. And uh, so I think I very much feel like I've benefited from being sort of at the scenes.
0: I like to point that out because Each thing is a thing. So, for example, if you are in medicine, taking that and now doing some narrative writing, it might seem like, oh, okay, you're just applying it, but that's like you're definitely now adding in a category to your existence that wasn't there previously. There's a lot of steps involved, people to contact, things to figure out. It may seem straightforward because the link is closer than like if you just suddenly start doing accounting, let's say, but it's still uh, another thing in life. We have to really make an effort... I think to add another thing, even if it's in a related field, and very few do that. So maybe if there was a percent, a number of people in the same field, maybe only two percent might reach out to combine it with this or with this. It's uh, it's not automatic. I think the average person might think it's so straightforward, like you could just do that. We can do everything, but how how many things will we actually uh, set aside? Time and energy to add on to what we were doing. Yeah, I think not too many, right? We have the short. I think it's uh, helpful existence. when
1: people choose things though that have some overlap. So at least for for medicine and writing, and I didn't realize this until I wrote the book that um, when I see patients, a lot of what I'm doing is I'm listening to their story and then I'm trying to distill it down into a narrative that tells a sort of coherent logical uh, tale of what's happened to them and it leads up to a logical conclusion of you know and therefore this is the diagnosis this is what's going on and this is the right treatment and that's actually the same skill that you use when you're when I was writing these stories is how do I create this uh, summary essentially that describes what happened to someone what it's like for them to be in existence what has changed for them and how do I lead the reader into a diagnosis that makes sense so they say oh you know know, I, that, that fits with what I've just heard. Oh, no, I, I could have seen that coming, something like that.
0: As a writer, what would you say makes a story compelling or does it have any certain elements that are necessary where someone will want to continue it? Does anything come to mind in that category?
1: So I think, and this is what I, what I tried to work on in the book is there's always has to be something that you want to know. If there's nothing more that you want to know, you're going to put the book down. And so a lot of it is about setting up a situation where uh, you want to know a piece of information that you haven't learned yet. That's the only thing that keeps people reading. So in the the book that I wrote, some of it is, you know, showing people a dramatic change in someone's personality or their existence. And then the goal is for the reader to say, oh, I I really wanna read on to figure out what happened to them, I want the explanation. I wanna know what's going to happen to them also. Not only, you know, what's the disease process that caused this, but is this person gonna recover? Are they gonna live? And in order to get someone to care about that, you have to get them to care about the character itself. So some of what I'm doing in the book is also trying to create a full picture of these people, um, because they are they are you know very much sort of complex, uh, intricate, and fascinating people. At least you know in my own biased opinion, um, it's a part of that is trying to get the reader to be attached to these people and attached to the character. so they want to know what's the outcome.
0: Makes sense. You're connecting with them as people. Now they are part of your world. One thing that I always like to check on is, were there any key people in your path that provided you a direction, like a fork in the road that led you to where you are currently? Or was it not that at all?
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I was really, I was lucky. I I, um, I had a mentor in college and then a mentor in my um, my graduate school program who were they were basic scientists and they were incredible teachers about uh, you know, teaching me essentially how to how to sort of how to think about science in a more sort of critical way. How do you design experiments? And even though I didn't end up doing science, I think that gave me the background to write about um, medicine in this way. Yeah. Um, and then they also, you know, my, my mentor for what would have been my PhD was wonderful to me. In when I, when I came up to him and said, you know, I, I think I don't want to finish this program. I think I want to go back to medical school. I don't think I want to have a lab. Yeah. It was a big life shift and he was wonderful to me. He, you know, treated me as a whole person and um, he, he was great. Yeah. So I was, I was really lucky with that. And then, um, and I've been really lucky with the, the neurology department where I work has been incredibly supportive and they've sent me, you know, um, patients that might be interested in being interviewed. They've been incredibly enthusiastic, even though, you know, writing and medicine is still a little bit sort of left field and um, they've been wonderful to me. Um, and then I've had other people outside of my own institution who have also helped the, um, the head of the American Academy of Neurology. She's also a physician writer and she's been incredibly supportive and she's been a wonderful mentor for me. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm sure I'm missing, out, missing lots of people. I guess the other thing that was been, was critical in the book, um, I actually wrote a lot of the book and then I gave it to a mentor um, at Penn. And he said, "You know, have you talked to these scientists? And I had written about lots of scientists who were alive and I hadn't actually talked to them yet. And it was I was like, oh, I had no idea. I guess maybe they would respond to me. And I emailed them and literally almost every living scientist in the book, um, I was actually able to talk to them. The only exception is um, it was Nancy Wexler and I was able to talk to her sister. And um, so that was incredibly lucky and actually very much changed how I wrote the science. I mean, me realize I had to, you know, people pointed out all these mistakes that I had made and I was glad to be able to correct it according to the people who had really done the the experiments.
0: I'm very fond of the point you just made where even in this case, Dr. Sarah Manning-Paskin was wondering, wait, would these individuals respond to me? What's going to happen here? You reached out and then afterwards you're like, wait a minute, this is, I like that part because that's the shift from like, uh, it's uh, maybe out of my bounds or an overreach versus oh, that would be great, and maybe they're glad on their end too. Isn't that a nice feature?
1: Yeah, it was really nice. It it um I it, I was totally shocked at how quickly I got responses from people, and I think it was an unusual sort of an unusual interest, unusual request. I think it was also neat for them to to talk with someone to have their research and um, sort of um, highlighted.
0: One of my key elements in my existence has always been. Uh, believing in oneself, self-esteem, reaching out, trying things, taking risks, being bold in some way. And so I'm, I've always focused heavily on the distinction between the first part of what you said and leading to the second part of what you said and the difference between there. Because one part of it is like, "Mm, I don't know, but me, I'm just this versus the second part is like, I am part of the full framework and this is cool and it would be nice. There's like a belief that comes with that. And then that's taken forever. It's not like you forget it the next day. It could be a year from now. And you're just like, that's true. I was part of this this element that yeah. people were glad to include. It's very building <laughs> in a way. That's a cool one. Self-esteem, very important. Um, I would like to check my last question for you is, are there any, um, what kind of, do you read any books in the same category? Is there any content you take in? Where do you learn things or check out things at the current time?
1: Yeah, so I think in terms of things that are in the category, the, the three sort of models that I took for this were, one. I mean, Oliver Sachs is sort of, he defined the field of writing about neurologic illness for the lay, lay audience, for the lay public. He really created this as an entity. Um, and he very much is still sort of the, the top of how do you describe what happens to a patient with a neurologic disease? Um, And then Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote um, Gene and Emperor Balmaladies, he's just a beautiful writer and he's sort of the, he's sort of the model of how do you tell the story of scientists discovering something? He just sort of tells it as a, rather than, you know, here's a bunch of facts, he brings things alive and he's just a beautiful narrator. Um, And then the other person I came across more towards the end of writing the book, um, but who's just a wonderful sort of scientific describer um, is Bill Bryson. He just writes about things. He writes about complicated scientific ideas in ways that are accessible and funny. And um, he does a great job also of moving from topic to topic at a pace that feels comfortable. And so those are the people I think in the field that I try to sort of bring in and for each of their particular skill sets.
0: On the mention of Siddhartha, I would like to say that I found out about him. I I kind of saw his book indirectly from before, but he has a good friend, Dr. Azra Raza, who's in New York. She's been a past guest on the show, and she told me quite a bit about him and his um, storytelling ability, and I thought he was uh, cool. And then one time, while I was in there visiting her, we had had dinner, and I was on the bus, uh, what do you call it, the, the transport in New York, and there was somebody in the... Transport that was reading his book. So I took a picture of it and sent it to her. Like this is happening right now. People are sharing the content. <laughs> he has a good story. The one about the, the gene. I think it's called yeah. the gene. The gene, right? Yeah, now. it's beautiful. Yeah. He's a great author of sorts. I won a Pulitzer Prize or some. some his first book uh, did, uh, yeah. Pulitzer. Yeah, it's so hard to prize. complain
1: about that.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Darn it. I won this. I won this award of sorts. That's cool. We all kind of are interlinked. This is a wonderful thing. Dr. Sarah Manning-Paskin, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show, showcasing a little bit from this wonderful book, A Molecule Away from Madness. By the way, the back, it's super cool. When I saw this, I thought this was action-packed. I always look at the details of books. Glad to have you on here and bring a lot of knowledge for all of us.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Glad to. And we are out.